tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Thank you for tuning into the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. You're listening to Episode 7 of Postmodern Realities, and I'm Melanie Cogdell, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. On this episode, I'm joined by Jay Watts, who is Vice President of Life Training Institute. Jay speaks at universities, high schools, and churches across the United States and participates in numerous radio and television interviews on the subject of the value of human life. In the current issue, volume 39, number 2 of the Christian Research Journal, Jay has written an article about rape and sexual violence on college campuses in the United States. Jay, it's good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me with you. So what made you interested in writing this article? It's kind of an in-the-news you know, topic lately. Yeah, it's, obviously you encounter it on college campuses, but personally what happened was I read John Krakauer's book, Missoula, which explores the idea of rape on college campuses. And I'm a fan of Krakauer. I mean, obviously his worldview, there's some differences there. Uh, but I like his work. I like his investigative style. And I usually walk away from his books feeling very informed about a subject matter. And I, I loved certain aspects of this book. I think he did a fantastic job at empathizing with and helping us to empathize with what's going on on campuses when a woman or a student is sexually assaulted and she has little recourse where things just aren't working and she's stuck on a campus with somebody that's abused her and the law just isn't working for her. And I felt that was, that was a strong aspect of the book. But I also felt like there were things missing in it, that there were aspects of it that seemed unexplored, and especially for somebody as experienced as him, where we weren't getting a full picture of it. It's, it felt like he was very animated towards this issue on that one side, uh, and that he wrote the piece in order to, to do that. And that's fine. That's fair. But so that drove me to want to find out more about what was going on in this issue, to become better informed and to see if I could find out if there were gaps in how he reported things and if there was another side to this whole story uh, as, it, as it circulates through the news that would be helpful for not just me, but for anybody that I could talk to and, and inform about what's going on in the process of what I do at LTI. I mentioned in the intro that you speak um, regularly at universities. And so have you had any interactions regarding the issue of sexual assault while you're on the college campus? I know that you focus normally on discussing the issue of abortion and the value of human life. Yeah, and every time you do a present now every time I do a presentation, I want to have a Q&A afterwards. I really feel like you learn or you, you earn the respect from the audience during Q&A. Giving a presentation is one thing, but when the audience has the opportunity to come after you, that's an entirely different thing. And I can say that interestingly to me, even though I talk about abortion, which is already a hot issue, the one place where I continuously and have only a solely place where people have walked out on any of my presentations have been when I was talking about rape, when rape came up. 
uh, the conjunction of rape and abortion happens in every conversation on campus. These two things come together. And so as the issue of sexual assault and rape on college campuses over the last couple of years has become such a divisive and and hot issue on the campus, uh, it has bled into the, the things that we're doing as far as the talks that we're giving. And I wanted to be able to answer those questions better. I wanted to be able to understand what was going on. How could somebody listen to me talk about abortion and not be bothered enough? But when it became time to, to talk about rape and abortion, the subject matter became the one point in the talk where, where they said, dialogue is over. I refuse to even listen anymore. Uh, and you could get out of them, if they're willing to talk, the passion that they felt about it. And I have talked to several students, one at University of Georgia, I remember talking, who was just so moved about this issue, no matter what she thought about the, the nature or the value of human life or unborn life, she could never get past the idea that this was the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody and was animated to passion to say that in this particular case, you always have to have access to abortion. And she, would, she talked about the, the campus atmosphere and sexual assault on campus. And so it does come up, and it comes up more increasingly. Uh, And so I think it's necessary for somebody who does what I do to interact with students all the time to be able to have a a good answer, a a good answer that informs the people that I'm talking to about this issue as much as such a thing as possible, even though it's tangentially hitting what I do most of the time. Well, I know in the news there has been a lot of you know, coverage of this issue and probably because of Krakauer's book and others. But there's been some really infamous cases. One would be the Duke lacrosse case. And then also the recent University of Virginia case that was covered in now the discredited Rolling Stone article. I remember reading that article and at the very beginning of it, I was just, I mean, it was just so disturbing to me as a parent and as a parent of someone going to college, I just could not believe that was happening. And so you get into this this article, and it is uh, very gripping. And so when that was discredited, you just really started feeling for the victims that, you know, are really victims. So this, these are controversial cases. Why didn't you talk about them in, in your article for us? Uh, you know, it, it felt weird to write an article about college campus rape and sexual assault and not mention the two most famous cases. But what was the reason I, I, I shied away from them was because in both of those cases, for those who don't understand, the Duke Lacrosse case was 2006. It centered on an African-American woman, Crystal Gale Mangum, bringing charges against three Duke Lacrosse players that she was raped during a party that they were having. Uh, and the, in this particular case, it was found to be a false allegation, and the Durham County District Attorney, Mike Nifong, resigned and was actually disbarred after the fact uh, for the way that he behaved in this because racial tensions were involved in this, uh, economics and class warfare was involved in this, the difference between the students at Duke and what was going on there. There were all these different things that became a national case. The same thing with University of Virginia, which you can't, uh, with the article of rape on campus, which you mentioned by uh, Sabrina Erdely. Uh, in 2014, she talked about this gang rape that happened as part of a fraternal, fraternity's initiation process. And everything in that case ended up becoming exposed as false. I mean, the, the initiation doesn't happen in the fall. It happens in the spring at Virginia. The guy that was at the center of the case, has, there, there's been no one ever like him ever been on the campus. Uh, it, was, it was an outrageous fabrication that Throwing Stone has since apologized for. But the thing was that both of these were clear-cut cases where the evidence, once it was looked at, clearly led to a, a, an understanding that these were false allegations. Uh, that these, the people raising these allegations knew that what they were saying happened did not happen. 
And because I was not writing an article about false allegations, and because you only have a short amount of time to take on something that I really think is a genuinely important issue, I didn't want to have to take a chunk of the article to discuss what is probably the two most famous cases, but at the same time, these cases are not indicative of what the fight is about right now. And if you look at them, the arguments that we're having, they're not over these hardcore false allegations cases where it's clear that it was made up. It's an entirely different discussion that we're happening on the campuses right now. So how does clarifying the difference between what you're mentioning as a false report of rape or sexual assault and cases that, you know, there's not enough evidence to prosecute um, somebody? And how does that impact just discussion about this issue? Well, you know, you hear, I hear people, and I talk to people on both sides of this, and I hear people who, who dislike the current dialogue on this issue, and, and they will point to the idea that they'll, they'll point to studies that say 90% of these are false allegations. A false allegation is defined as what I said before. It's where the person making the allegation knows they're lying. The events never happened. Nothing like what they're describing occurred. And then you hear people on the other side say false allegations almost never happen. And so what, ha what actually ends up happening is, depending on where you land on that issue, if you believe in this concept of false allegations being pervasive, then you dismiss all of these claims and you think all of this discussion isn't worth happening. If you think that they never happen, then you end up being in the case that everything, we have to have a, a more robust pursuit of justice. I, I, the, uh, clarifying the difference between a false allegation and then the cases where the overwhelming number of cases that don't end up in a prosecution they aren't false allegations. What they are is that there was just there was discrepancy. You may have two people who had a long-term relationship where it was difficult to determine for one party what was consent versus the other party who believes they clearly gave consent, and there's insufficient evidence to bring a criminal charge against them. There's all these cases where somebody may have been incapacitated due to alcohol or drugs, and they don't fully understand what happened at that point, and they think that they were assaulted, but the other person claims that it never happened. There's these, these gray rape cases where, or date rape or these ideas where there was friendship and relationship and all of these things that can Fuse the matter that make it difficult for us to sort out the truth of what happened to the extent that we can criminally prosecute somebody. That's not a false allegation. A false allegation is just a straight up lie. And really, when you look at the numbers, there was a, Cambridge, a 2006 Cambridge article that was done in the uh, Cambridge Law Journal by Philip Rumney. Uh, he said, look, we're really, when you look at stuff like the FBI uniform crime reports and the estimates all over the country, when you get past old ways of looking at rape and sexual assault, what you're going to find out is that consistently the number of false allegations, the straight-up lies, are going to fall somewhere in the 2 to 10% range. And actually, if you look at false allegations or false reports in murder and robbery and other areas, it's in the 2 to 4%. And I think Romney makes a pretty good point to say, let's, let's just take that as normative then, somewhere between that 2 to 4 at max 10%, as opposed to these outrageous figures that we sometimes see thrown around. They're usually done by studies that are somewhat flawed or have a really small study to look at. So, so let's consider the fact that the majority of these cases are not false allegations, so we need to take them seriously. We have a serious responsibility to try to sort out the truth of what happened in them. You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is Jay Watts, who has written a feature article for the Volume 39, Number 2 issue of the Christian Research Journal, and it's called Rape and Sexual Violence on Campus, Compassionately Navigating the Deluge of Data. This is a very must-read article on a really hot topic. And so to read his article, please subscribe to the journal. A six-issue subscription is $39.50, and to subscribe online, visit equip.org. You're just helping us clarify the difference between truly a false report and then some that just lack sufficient evidence for prosecution. But those kinds of 
things can really be intimidating to women. Like, should they report their, themselves being sexually assaulted, especially if there might be some insufficient evidence? Why should they report their assault? Well, obviously, as a Christian, I believe that the pursuit of justice is important, not just for the woman who deserves justice. I mean, no woman deserves to be raped. No person deserves to be raped. And it's one of the worst things we can imagine happening to another individual. It's one of the worst things we can imagine happening to ourselves or especially to the people that we care about. As a father of two young daughters, the idea of one of them being victimized in that way at some point in the future, it terrifies me, horrifies me. I want to equip them to be able to deal with that. But when, when that happens, there is clearly in the, case of, in, the, in the process of seeking justice, the woman knows she is going to fall under the microscope, that her whole life is going to be torn apart, that there is going to be attacks against her character by the defense, all, and, and just an embarrassment. I mean, a lot of times they've, they've gotten themselves into a situation uh, where they trusted somebody that they should not have trusted, and they put themselves in a situation uh, where they allowed somebody access to them that should never have had access to them. So you understand the hesitancy to do something, but she deserves justice. Anyone who's been a victim of rape deserves justice, but the community does as well. Uh, there's a great book by a, a young adult author named Laurie Hall Sanderson called Speak, and, and in the book it, it details a young girl, high school girl, that has dealt with being sexual, is dealing in the process of dealing emotionally with being a victim of sexual assault. And as what happens in the case, and you see these in sexual assault cases, when she finally speaks up, the dam breaks. And then you find out that this wasn't just one incident, there's more incidents out there. So what happens that fear of having to face all of that criticism, which is fully understood, which is why we need a support system for these women uh, and for these students on campus. Uh, but the fear of speaking up leaves other people out there at risk of becoming victims as well. Uh, so we know that this does happen. If we want to argue about how often it happens, that's a different conversation. But we do know that it does happen. And that the men who are capable of raping one woman are capable of raping another. And so to protect the community, to seek justice for the community and for themselves, we have to encourage them to come forward, to, to seek justice, and to do the best that we can to prevent this type of person from being able to continue to operate like that within our community and hurt far more people after the fact. Do you think that people don't take the very uh, violence of rape seriously. I was thinking of the recent, I don't know if you saw the recent story of the girl who, friend, uh, who uh, videoed her friend getting raped on Periscope and mm. just the likes kept going up and she kept videoing it and she was kind of giggling and it was very evident that this woman is being assaulted. This girl, she was actually 17. Do you think somehow now that people don't take this violent act as seriously? It's, you know, it's difficult to tell. There are so many things that you encounter that are shocking. I mean, where, where you see them, you think, how could this have possibly happened? Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to answer that except to say that obviously there's something broken with the way that we assess this situation. And I think we bring a lot of our presuppositions to it. We're, we're clearly we have ideas about how we feel about these things before the information gets to us. And that, that has a way of affecting us. And in that moment, I, I was not always a Christian, and I, was, I, was, I lived in a lifetime before all of this where I was involved in a much more, uh, a much deeper, harder party scene. And I saw things getting out of hand when I was there. Uh, and I saw things growing when I was in that environment. I understand how that can happen. So I don't know uh, if it, I think obviously we take it seriously because like when the Virginia case came out, the first response of all of us was just to be horrified and to want that, 
that group shut down and investigations were launched. And the same thing with the Duke lacrosse case. When that first happened, the Duke lacrosse games were canceled, and then the season was canceled, and the coach was fired. So I think clearly as a whole, we still take it seriously, but I think situationally, clearly also as well, there was a culture out there that allows things to get out of control and to get out of hand. And in the midst of that culture, we lose sight of maybe just the basic humanity of the people that we're walking around with. And it's only when we've been removed from hindsight, because I know the girl that you're talking about after the fact had all these defenses about what was going on to try to explain why she did what she did. Clearly, she understood after the fact that she had been participating in a great evil. But it was in the midst of it, for whatever reason, something was blocked there, some, some sensitivity to the humanity of the people around her. That's a good point. And how, in, you know, you're talking about rape on campus, how did colleges and universities end up in the position of investigating these sexual assaults and rapes, uh, you know, independent of the criminal justice system and criminal charges in the first place? I think in the article you mentioned the girl who ends up as kind of a form of protest taking her mattress around with her all over campus. Yes. And so she felt like she was not getting justice from the university. But why are there almost like two different systems with regard to investigating these sexual assaults? Well, because of what we talked about earlier, the difficulty in proving or, or demonstrating a, at a criminal prosecution level, which is beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, it's a different level of evidence that has to be supplied. What, what happened, especially given that most rapes, the overwhelming majority of rapes we're talking about are committed not by strangers. That's a, very, it's a much smaller percentage. It's not the guy hiding in the bushes. It's a friend. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an acquaintance at a party. It's somebody that you know, somebody that has access to your life. And so the prosecution can be difficult. And, and all of these other, like when we talked about fr- sometimes false reports, well, they have been, it's been demonstrated that the expectation of false reports can actually color the prosecution moving forward as well. And so you do have cases where people have been legitimately victimized through rape, and then they are expected to carry on at school because the prosecution was not capable of mounting a sufficient evidence case against the, the, uh, the rapist, where they have to go to class and they have to be around this person, and it just, it, it's unfair. I mean, there's obviously to us, there's, it's an obvious unfairness to this. It's unfair the second a person has been put through this, and then everything after that just breeds more and more unfairness. And I think in response to that, and I mentioned this in the article, the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights in 2011 encouraged schools then to investigate these matters more vigorously through what they considered a right that they gained through Title IX. Title IX says that we have a responsibility to provide a safe environment for the education of women on their campuses. And so the Office of Civil Rights says, look, in this, what is called a Dear Colleague letter in 2011, they sent out to all the schools around the country, they said, investigate these things more vigorously to protect your students and to provide them with safety. And I, I will say this, I understand what happened. I understand how we got there. It really is a legitimate effort to try to, uh, to take care of an unfairness and injustice. Uh, but what it has done is put our universities and our colleges in the position of investigating criminal charges with a lesser standard of evidence and things like that. So, Is there any way to, you give us some statistics, is there any way to get a clearer picture about how often sexual assault and rape is actually happening on campus? Because I'm assuming that you know, less uh, reports are made than actual assaults? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. I would say not really. I go over with a little more detail in the article, 
But the pro- and this was what I first started doing. When I first put down the Crack Hour book, my first goal was to figure out, are the numbers he's offering real? Because if they are, I mean, we're talking about people reporting somewhere between 20 to 25% of women on, sex- on campuses being sexually assaulted to some degree or sexually harassed to some degree before they leave campus. Uh, these numbers are remarkable. They're the kind of thing that should require massive amounts of national attention. It would, uh, quite frankly, make me not want my daughter to go to college if I knew that she had a one in four chance of being victimized in that way. Uh, and so I wanted to check those numbers out. And what happened was I found that it's, it's the, the disparity between one side reporting versus the other is massive. And some of that is in how we characterize things as sexual assault. Oftentimes, to get those higher numbers, you have lesser offenses, sometimes even so much as uh, multiple times of asking a girl out and her saying no can fall into the category of sexual harassment and therefore assault. Um, there are things that happen that, that diminish the, the impact of that gravity of that charge of sexual assault that they include in that. On the lower number, if you go to like the FBI Uniform Crime Report statistics, they say it's about six out of a thousand women, 6.7 out of a thousand women on a college campus is the victim of rape, second sexual assault. Uh, that's a little lower than the general population. So the difference there is less than 1% to 25%. It's a massive difference. Now, if you count for the idea that these will be underreported, obviously, in the sense that women who are victimized in this way, for the reasons we've already discussed, are, not, are hesitant to come forward for, for multiple reasons, then where do you start your, your recognition of underreporting? Does it get you from 6.7 out of 1,000 to 25%? Uh, I think that's a, a, a little bit out of hand. I, and I, I tend to agree with the people who evaluate these numbers that said the number at 25% is something on, is something on par with uh, and, and a country at civil war where all law has been suspended and people and there's just nothing going on anymore to protect anybody. Uh, the general population is about seven women or seven people out of 1,000 fall victim of sexual assault. If you want to build up on that, I think we start at the lower number and get there, but there really is no way to get a firm number on what's going on because of the idea of underreporting, because of the idea that things are, or there have been accusations also of police forces at different times in the past uh, not are covering these up to some degree uh, and saying that there were no case there when there should have been attempts to prosecute. So what's difficult about trying to set up a system that's taking rape charges um, on campus seriously and also safety for young women? I'm thinking about the recent revelations, maybe you've seen them in the news, regarding BYU and their honor code and the, the fact that when women were reporting their sexual assaults, it ended up being them investigated and not really pursuing the actual report of the assault. Yeah, and that has happened. Things like that have happened all over the country. Where there, there have genuine, there, I don't want to, when I talk about the statistics being much lower than what's reported, I never want to diminish the idea that there are actually horrible things going on out there. Uh, and, and so there are cases where it just isn't investigated properly. The, the problem is, is, is when I looked into it, and this is a problem that's recognized by people on both sides, it's really difficult for an institution uh, like a university whose sole purpose is to educate uh, people and to create an environment where freedom of speech and freedom of information is cultivated so that people have an opportunity to learn and have their views challenged to become an investigative arm and essentially a criminal proceeding. They're not equipped to do that. They don't have the ability to do that the same way that a police force does. Uh, and so they have to do it under the auspices of what I mentioned earlier of Title IX's requirement for safety. So it's not even really a pursuit 
of justice in the sense of wrongdoing. It's a pursuit of a safe environment. And that may seem like a, a small difference, but it manifests itself massively in how investigations are, are worked out. There is a lower standard of proof that is, that is demanded of them from the Office of Civil Rights, where as opposed to the high standard of proof, which would be uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, to an even higher standard of proof than they're operating would be clear and compelling evidence, which would be a lower standard of evidence than you would get in a criminal case, but much more something that you would have in a civil case. All they have to do is provide a preponderance of evidence. So they're told to investigate where there has to be a 50.01% chance that the charges are true versus being false. And the people that are being accused are not allowed legal representation in the process and are not allowed any opportunity either through representation or directly to cross-examine the, the complainant, the person that's accusing them. Uh, now, I understand all of that because the idea is to protect and make safe that woman who needs to be able to come forth and feel like she's empowered to report sexual assault. The problem is that in that zeal to seek that justice through the, con- the idea of safety, we, we have done something in getting rid of legal representation and cross-examination that makes it more difficult to get at the truth. So this this issue of prohibiting cross-examination by the accused or their legal, you know, representatives in these on-campus investigation, does it reasonably protect or unfairly balance, you know, the university? I mean, is there equal protection for both sides in terms of investigating what actually happened? Yeah, and this is interesting because, again, every, I think when you get reasonable people on both sides will tell you how incredibly hard it is to do this. Uh, I think any... Any, any effort to find justice, anytime we go after something, we're, are, 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 we should be looking for the truth. Our investigation ought to be at its core a desire to seek the truth about what happened. Uh, there is a renowned American jurist, John Henry Wigmore, that once said, cross-examination is beyond any doubt the greatest legal engine ever invented for the discovery of the truth. Uh, I've trained you know, a group of people in debate, and we did a mock trial recently. And it, it, there's a difference when you get somebody in the, and have the opportunity to ask them questions about the narrative that they've offered, where you get to find the holes in it. And that's exactly, by the way, how we found the holes in the Virginia case. It was to be able to examine their narrative and to go back and talk to people that had offered testimony within that narrative and find out that the testimony as it was reported in Rolling Stone did not match the testimony as it was being reported at that moment when they were talking to them. So cross-examination is a tool to getting towards the truth, to finding out what actually happened. Now, I get, again, I fully understand the desire to protect the woman. They ought to be. We have to do what we can to make it safe for them to come forward. But in an effort to make it safe, if we start to lose the balance of finding the truth, then it's difficult to figure out how we're supposed to pursue justice, which hopefully would be our goal here. And there's a a woman by the name of Kristen Hauser was on the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, and she was quoted as saying, what makes anything related to sexual assault difficult is we get a really emotional and knee-jerk response to it. There's no perfect remedy. Unfortunately, if there were one, we would be advocating for it. See, everybody of reason understands that this is just a terrible problem to have to deal with. But what we're seeing and what we discuss at greater length in the article is that there are university investigations, as they've been ordered to take place by the Office of Civil Rights, is fraught with complication at getting towards truth and justice. Where it may be an effective arm at getting towards safety, there are some questions whether or not safety in and of itself is a legitimate goal. And, and you see, by the way, what we were, when we started working on this article and wrote it a while back, 
within that time, you started to see this safety thing coming out elsewhere, where other people and other groups on campus were appealing to safety as a means to get the things that they wanted done, because they're appealing to the same language that's appealed to under Title IX. And in all of these cases, it's already got a lot of ground, a lot of headway, uh, as far as university investigations and power and dealing with students on campus. So. Well, with these different um, competing narratives that you were mentioning, is there anything that these two sides can even agree on with regard to sexual assault? Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, if you get past the way that they say things, which is sometimes difficult to do. I mean, you, you, I, I try to be as gracious as I possibly can when I'm, at, when I'm dealing with people, and sometimes they say things in a way that makes it difficult to see that they agree on things. One thing that they do agree on, and I do mention this in the article, is that even though it is absolutely the case, there is no woman that was ever raped by her own fault. It wasn't her fault that she was raped. There are things that we can do to minimize the circumstances and to remove ourselves from situations where it's more likely to happen. So you can't prevent it, but there are things that you can do to minimize your risk. And they both agree with that. They both agree about decisions. I mean, I think, you know, an obvious decision would be when you're in a strange environment around strange people, you should have a friend looking out for you. You should be there with somebody that you know is going to look after your interests and that you're going to look after theirs. I think it's entirely reasonable that all people should know it's a terrible idea uh, to get so in incapacitated through drugs or alcohol around strangers that you have no idea what you're doing or have any ability to protect yourself or to, to control your surroundings. Uh, to treat the environment that you're in, especially on college campuses, as if you would treat other environments. It's, it's not Disney World, you know, it's not a safe place where you are protected. Uh, these are still strangers, and, and we've seen a, 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 an inability for people to recognize on college campuses they should still demand that there be some level of trust between them and the people that they are spending a lot of their time with. And we see that lowered, that standard lowered. So all sides agree that it's not a woman's fault that she's being raped, and there are things that we can do to minimize the risk of rape. Even the most, the most passionate advocate for these rape laws on campuses and this new way of prosecuting and, and trying to deal with rape uh, is going to say that, and, and they do say on their websites, RAIN, their website that talks about rape, assault, and incest and all these things on campuses, they say, you know, the idea of take care of yourself and make sure that you are protecting yourself as much as possible so that you don't find yourself in a position where you're powerless to stop somebody from doing this to you. So what's the apologetic value for Christians? I mean, how can we effectively engage in this kind of hot-button issue, and um, how can we be equipped to deal with it, and why should we be? Well, I, yeah, I think there's a lot. I think, and I think hot issues have some general practical apologetic value anyway. I think it, it, because of the, the cost, you know, the cost, obviously we've talked a lot about what happens to a woman who's been victimized by rape, and rightly so. But in these investigations that have gone haywire, we've seen incidences where, where, where students have been expelled and barred from, from their campus and restricted on their movement throughout an entire town and their whole life being disrupted because they're under investigation for things that there's little evidence that they actually did. There have been evidences of abuses on the other side as well. The costs are so high here that as we engage this, we should have a responsibility to be informed, to do our best to be informed about what's going on around us. As you and I both agreed, when I first heard about that Virginia case, my blood boiled. I was so angry about what I was hearing and about... and. I didn't ask myself immediately, I think, as I usually should, this is so outrageous, 
I may need to hold off on it. And I've, I've learned that over the years. I may need to hold off on judgment on this until I find out the truth about what's going on. And, and because nowadays we are very emotional in our responses to us, we have a responsibility as Christians to be informed about the issues that we're discussing. Uh, we have a responsibility as we're sending people to college to be able to tell them the environment that you're going into has all of these benefits and it has these dangers, and be informed about those and be able to equip them. We need to be, in, be able to engage people who are asking for wide-sweeping uh, uh, strategies to deal with this that are going to impact areas that they haven't yet seen, that there's a slippery slope involved here, and it's going to start impacting other things. But to engage that in a way that's not ugly or dismissive, controlling our emotions is huge, and being informed helps us with that. And I always tell people, don't dismiss the concerns of your detractors. When you're arguing for a position with the idea that we're trying to get as close as we can to be the truth, we need to respect where their argument is coming from. I mean, if you're talking to somebody, who is, I have, as I have done, who has been a rape victim, who I, as I'm talking to them about rape in the abstract, they're reliving it in their head or remembering what they've been through. I need to understand, as I come to places where I disagree with them, that that disagreement isn't just rooted in that we have different worldviews, but that we have entirely different experiences as we come to this. And as I break ideas to them that I think are closer to the truth, but that are going to confound their emotional response, I need to be prepared to be gracious as I do that and to pay full respect to the reason that they disagree with me. Uh, and then finally, I always tell people, be confident in what you know and be properly humble in what you don't. And I have never read about anything where I think this applies more. Uh, I, there's a lot of things that I know about this now after having studied about it. There's about as many that I don't know or that are still sort of murky and unclear. And so as I'm forming a Christian response to something this important for our culture to engage in, I need to both have the confidence on what I know so I can't be forced to be quiet because somebody makes my life uncomfortable for a moment, but I also need to be confident in what I don't know so I don't claim to have knowledge that I don't and get insensitive to that. Well, that's some great advice. Well, finally, I want to end with some fun, rapid-fire questions for Jay. So, Jay, I know you live in the southeast part of the United States. So, fried chicken or pulled pork barbecue? Fried chicken. Every where, day of the week and twice on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Where were you born? I was born, in, uh, just, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. I live just north of it, though. Were you named after anybody? Uh, my dad. I'm actually James Albert Watts III. And what's the most uh, played song on your iPod? Uh, it's actually a, a song uh, by Colin Hay, who was lead singer of Minute Work. It's an acoustic song that he wrote called Waiting for My Real Life to Begin. I would say probably that's the most listened to song on my iPod. And if you have 30 minutes of free time, how do you pass the time? Uh, you know, it's a tie between reading or just hanging with the family and pl outside, doing something out athletic and active outside with the family. One of those two, those are my two great joys in life. Being outside with the family or sitting in my chair with a book. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the Postmodern Realities podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time. Jay has an article in volume 39, number two of the Christian Research Journal called Rape and Sexual Violence on Campus, Compassionately Navigating the Deluge of Data. To read Jay's article, you want to subscribe to the journal and a six-issue subscription is $39.50. Please subscribe by going online to equip.org. 
Be sure you also tune in daily to the Bible Answer Man broadcast hosted by CRI President Hank Hanegraaff, who answers your questions live on air. To ask Hank a question, call 888-ASK-HANK at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. To listen to the live stream of the show as well as previous broadcasts, go to Equip.org, where you can also download our free smartphone app where you can live stream Bible Answer Man broadcast, listen to previous broadcasts, and subscribe to the Christian Research Journal. 